In reporting for a book about the nation's recovery efforts in the first year after 9-11, after how America confronted the September 12 era in 2003, Stephen Brill discovered that two of the hijackers had been on that expanded list. Distribution of their names to the airlines had been delayed because the FBI and the FAA had not resolved which organization's letterhead should be attached to the memo bearing the new list. On the day the World Trade Center fell and the Pentagon was left smoldering, the CIA knew that two suspected terrorists whom it was tracking around the world and who ended, on the ended up on the 9-11 planes had come to the U.S. months earlier. But the agency never told the FBI. When this came to light, the September 12th era phrase, failure to connect the dots, was born. Today, all U.S. security agencies share the same watch list and threat databases, which are constantly updated. They share intelligence tips with one another, though sometimes still grudgingly. And federal officials even sit on task forces with their local counterparts. With some lingering ex exceptions, we do connect the dots. 9-11 precipitated the events that led to the passage of the Patriot Act, which made sweeping changes to civil liberties with near-unanimous support from Congress. So today on The Direct Message, we're asking, how did some parts of this legislation and the fervor around it shape our understandings of privacy and security? Welcome to The Direct Message. My name is Christian Hossam. My name is Maika Sampson. And on this podcast, we explore the impact and influence of major pivotal policy moments in shaping the millennial generation. Our guest today is Lisa Sims, a research analyst in the International Security Project here in New America. I think something that Christian and I got into a discussion about yesterday was um, thinking about data collection on just the side of state surveillance and that it would be a really great idea to keep a strict line between data collected for the purposes of budgeting, districting, um, or social services completely separate from that of law enforcement. But with a lot of people who I think are very optimistic about the, the capacities of big data, that there's this idea that we can marry those two things together and make everybody's lives easier if we just do like a one-stop shop. We collect data on everybody about everything and we use it for all government purposes. And That sounds terrifying. It does sound <laughs> terrifying, but that's uh, it sounds like a utopia to some people, but it's actually it's, it's a nightmare for a lot of other people. And I, I don't know quite where we move on from here past the enthusiasm and a lot of just confidence in the capacities for, for technology. Can I, sorry, that, that wasn't entirely a question, so I'm wondering if I can ask you a question. Yeah, go for it. So I, you mentioned that you don't cover your webcam out of, just, you just haven't gotten around to it, like whatever, whatever. Um, Mark Zuckerberg covers his, so I should probably cover mine. When did you, when did you decide to to cover your webcam and, and why did you make that decision? A story came out about about a group of just like creepy guys somewhere who like to hack people's webcams. I don't think they're necessarily affiliated with any government. Um, they just had the ability to look at people's webcams and would do it just for fun. So it wasn't necessarily um, like tinfoil hat paranoia around government surveillance. The FBI can look at my double chin anytime they want, but just knowing that like a, a person sitting in his room somewhere could look at me really creeped me out. And I'm also like a bit of a millennial gremlin and like spent a lot of time on different internet platforms like 4chan Reddit. where people, like Reddit, 4chan, where people talked very openly about hacking other people's computers and the things that they could do. So that made me really paranoid. Um, it made me realize that the world was an entirely nice place. So, yeah, I, I'm very careful about what I say online, what I do online, um, and try to take better precautionary measures. So, as Micah said, you know, there are two major things kind of 
going around circling each other that we want to talk about today, which are a kind of like the national security state and the homeland security state, especially post 9-11, but also kind of what that meant for how we think about security and also privacy. I guess when I think of security in relation to privacy, there are a couple of things that come to mind. I mean, I, you know, I think we're all around the same age. I, I'm 24. Um, and I, I think about how I kind of grew up in this, this digital environment. And, you know, I had a MySpace. I, I have a Facebook. I have a Twitter. I have all of the things. And so you kind of assume a certain level of surveillance. And then at the same time, we're more, we're more versed on digital surveillance than we are, I think, on on civil liberties in some respects. So we tend to um, ignore that part of it, not necessarily because we don't care about it, but but we're not constantly talking about you know what this means and in, in these different contexts and how that that definition might change as we as we age into to new eras and um, new technologies. So so it does it does become a challenge to to take a step back and think hmm like what does this mean? How do I feel about this? And I I don't have my webcam taped up. Although I, I agree that, that, that I would side with you. I'm just too lazy to, to have done it already. That's exactly but. right. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm, not a, I'm not like a, oh, like the government can do whatever they want. I, I, pro- I really should. But, but, you know, yeah. in some ways that gets yeah. to, to the broader yeah. point of like, you know, there is a way in which we can't even really gauge what exactly what privacy warrants. Right. It's harder right. to kind of say like, well, what are we taping it for? We, there is right. a sense that right. we're being surveilled, but even the substance of what that means is hard to tell. Yeah, I do have a second point. So I think, so my first point, I guess, is just kind of this nebulous idea of, of ignorance around the topic is, I guess, what I'm mostly trying to say. But what what I do know is that I think we, we think of, um, of surveillance as something that... Um, inequitable world, something that's happening to everyone equally. And that's not necessarily the case. Some people are are being surveilled more than others. Some people, you know, people of color specifically bear this burden more more than other people. So I think that that's also important to consider. And that's something that I that I give a lot of thought to. If, if you don't mind, I can actually share a personal anecdote where, where this became apparent to me. And this isn't anything that happened online. This was actually in real life. I a lot of packages get stolen off doorsteps in, in my neighborhood. So I typically have things shipped to the store when I order online. And one time last year, I was I picked something up from the store and I was walking home and I was downtown DC's business district. And I was stopped by a couple of police and they asked me about the package and they weren't convinced that it was mine until they searched my baggage. They also made me show my ID so that they could make sure that it was mine. And because, you know, packages had been going missing, apparently, in the area. But I seemed to be the only one that was stopped and checked in that way. So it's not that I don't understand the need to be to be vigilant about about crime, about national security. But it's the way in which we do it and and who who we target that that gives me pause. So while I, you know, am probably more ignorant than I should be on on the nuances of of the Patriot Act, Act, on the nuances of digital security, I do know that I I always think that that less (laughs) less surveillance is best because I know the communities that are going to be targeted the most by this. That's really reflected in some of the polling data. It depends on how you ask people about surveillance, like how they're going to respond to it. Um, I think CNN put out a poll that said, um, should there be caps on how much information a government is allowed to collect about you? 
and people overwhelmingly were like, of course, there should be, there should be reasonable limits on that. But when you say, should the government collect as much information as is necessary to prevent terrorism, and it becomes sort of a national security issue, or you bring in language that is othering or does allude to some sort of foreign threat, that is when people sort of shift their attitudes. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the that's I, that's the point And the problem is that that these issues are are often in service of some national security objective. I, you know, when Martin Luther King, uh, they, they started surveilling him in 1955, the FBI did. And and um, this was, you know, approved by the AG, signed by um, Kennedy. And this is something that that everyone was able to agree upon because it wasn't just should we, you know, surveil Dr. King, it was, does he, you know, sympathize with with communism? So I, I want to take a step back a little bit, because we should think about when we're thinking about national security, and we're thinking about how people's minds change when you when you mention a specific threat. I think it's important to think about who exactly they're threatened by. Because, you know, if you if you're against, you know, having your your civil liberties stepped upon by you know being like surveilled at every turn i think that even if you knew if, even if the government said we're trying to prevent terrorism you know we're trying to uh, <laughs> prevent the spread of communism you you'd still you'd still be somewhat alarmed unless you knew that those words meant that you weren't a target you know what i mean so the the people who aren't being targeted know they're not being targeted so so it's easier to support this kind of thing and to so it 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 almost works as you know this maybe this is controversial but it kind of works as a little bit of a dog whistle because like when we talk about terrorism you know socially politically we we know the group of people we're talking about we're talking about Muslims were talking about the surveillance of, of mosque and Muslim neighborhoods, which did happen after 9-11. And, you know, the NYPD has settled cases for this behavior, like acknowledging um, in some respect, if not formally and officially, that that this was this surveillance, you know, was overreaching and it overstepped a lot. And discriminatory. And, right. And there are going to be some Ameri Americans who are OK with that. And, and that's just kind of the 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 reality of surveillance that that we live in. But I think there is a new reality in addition to what you're saying. So there is a moment of we understand kind of the discriminatory and inequitable impact of these kind of surveillance practices. But since 9-11 and post 9-11, and this is not as, as a direct result necessarily, but there's also been just a huge explosion in the kind of the capacity of both the government and governments around the world, as well as multinational corporations to collect huge, huge troves of data. So in some ways, we are all targets, even though the deleterious impacts of that targeting might, might of course, be meted out differently. So how, how might we, how, like, I guess in your expertise, kind of, could you talk a little bit about what you know about kind of the intersection of, like, data and kind of this larger narrative of, of collection, surveillance, kind of whatever framework you might want to use? Well, first of all, this isn't my specific expertise. I, I primarily collect data on the U.S. drone program and international drone proliferation. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to portray myself as an expert <laughs> on um, NSA data collection. But I think that, I mean, one of the one of the problems that I've heard, I guess, from national security experts with the kind of collection that occurs like at the NSA and, and the FBI and the, the sharing of intelligence is that 
right now we're reaching a point where there's too much information. So so we all are are, are targets in some sense that all of our information is is being collected to to some extent. There are different, I guess, levels that that are allowed. I don't want to, you know, portray it as something that's, you know, we're not I don't want to I don't want to wear my tinfoil hat right now. I, I mean, they're limited to their personnel and resources, their abil- their ability to to review the data. So there's a lot of data that's just out there. And I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if a if a, a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, did it did it really happen? And kind of if your if your data is just sitting there on some server and nobody's looked at it, you know, it, have you been surveilled? And so obviously they're going to have to to prioritize different people and groups and causes to to focus on, I guess. Well, I guess I guess really what I'm thinking about is just, you know, kind of how do we think about what exactly what you talked about earlier, the inequitable impact of these things in the world where, you know, because I, I guess a, a way to think about it, take a step back is, you know, surveillance is not something that is new um, in, the, in the aftermath of 9-11. You, said, you talked about Martin Luther King earlier. We, what we know of as stop and frisk kind of happened in a policy way post 9-11, but really was in existence for many years before that. So we might think about surveillance as a much longer historical threat. However... There's also a moment where this explosion of data collection means something different. It means something new. So I, I guess I wanted you to think about what that might mean for us, even in terms of the, the inequitable impacts of how the data is used. Mm-hmm. But we also know that there's just a maximalism in terms of collection. Are we just talking about the government or are we also talking about, you know, the private sector? I mean, obviously, Facebook CEO mm-hmm. Mark Zuckerberg just testified of course. Um, for the Senate. It's really relevant. Um, and so, I mean, so data data collection is, is happening at, at sort of in, in different areas and, and to different degrees. And that, that's one of the, the most powerful things that Facebook has has to market is is our information. You know, they in in one of the more comical parts of the the hearing, one of the senators, you know, asked him, you know, like like is Facebook always going to be for like free? And he was like, well, yeah. And they're like, you know, well, h- how is that a profitable profitable business model? Like, how do you guys make money? And he's like, well, we we sell ads, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. which you know anyone of of our generation knows <laughs> knows that. So that kind of like revealed the the gap between um, what what they understand in Congress versus kind of what we understand outside. And that's, you know, that's what they're selling. They're selling us. They're selling selling information about us. So I guess you have to think about surveillance in a couple of different senses, modern day surveillance. It's it's not always going to be in in service of criminalizing our behavior and trying to add us to a watch list or something. You also have to worry about how how your data is being used in the private sector, and and I guess if if the question is you know what does this all you know bode or augur for us, it, it's I think we have to start you know asking ourselves questions about how we want to live our lives, how we want to conduct ourselves on the internet, and how we might start you know self censoring to to limit the amount of information that's out there about us because I don't see policies changing to to limit limit the the data that the government's allowed to collect that that Facebook is is allowed to collect and and it's going to you know in the same way that you guys have structured this around whether or not you cover your webcams i think that that kind of is like a like a metaphor of how we're going to have to to handle answer these questions for ourselves and on an individual level and change our own personal behavior because i don't see any limitations coming coming in the future. Now that said, you know, 
in Europe, um, they just passed the um, the general data protection regulation, um, which kind of like limits the amount of data or the the way that people are able to collect data of if each of any individual. So there are potential policy solutions, but I think your point stands, though. I mean, Europe because, also takes a widely different. Um, that's true. View on private companies than, than mm, the U.S. does. Exactly. And I mean, and, and I think that compl- there's an Amer- there's a point we have to talk about the United States specifically, right? And what that kind of looks like, because you're, because I think you were getting at this just now, and I don't want to cut you off. It's just like, there is also like an international question here about like, actually, a multinational corporation therefore has access to people, people's information all around the world, whereas a state, a government might not in the same way. So we could think about what that means as well, because there are also these other thorny legal and and, and and which we don't have to get into, but I guess the point is, you know, the reason that you have to, when you talk about surveillance, you have to talk about the public and the private sector is because of just that reason, that they are therefore subject to different kinds and of... And I, I do want to clarify that when it comes to domestic surveillance and, you know, wiretapping and whatever you might think when you think of that, that obviously is the jurisdiction of the FBI. And I don't want to portray the, the NSA as, you know, doing that, that kind of thing, that their scope is obviously focused on on foreign nationals. I think I'm also, we might be neglecting a, a different camp of, of people in this discussion, um, folks who think that uh, data can be harnessed for good, that if we collected mm-hmm. just enough data about everybody, we can foster greater transparency between citizens and governments and perhaps create a more equitable society. And I, I have my doubts on that, but I would like to hear your thoughts on it. On whether or not data could be used for good? Or that it's not that the data collection in and of itself is bad. It's that the way it's been used in the past is bad. And that if we press forward with big data collection and analyze data in the appropriate way, we could do better things with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I hear that. I, I, I want to say data collection on its own is neutral, but then I I stop myself and <laughs> and I say, well, you know, this obviously, you know, these things come out of a, a need for for some specific thing. At least on on the government side, you know, you start surveillance like starts from surveillance isn't data collection isn't necessarily colorblind is I guess the point I'm getting at, and the extent to which like people of color have been disproportionate victims of unjust surveillance really like kind of makes it hard for me to say oh well this could could this could be positive in the long run because i think that that's this this kind of gets into the the civil liberties you know question one i'm i'm always going to f- I guess that statement would say I'm, I'm always going to fear what people are going to do with that data but i also think that there should be transparency about the the data being collected it's kind of, I mean, against a lot of our personal ideas about about freedom to to say, well, yeah, I mean, just collect what, whatever you want about me because this may benefit me in the in the long run. I know that uh, a lot of my friends and I joke about how we actually we we like the that Facebook curates advertisers for us. We I've I've bought things off of of, of Instagram based on, mm-hmm. on on the suggestions that I know are just based on, you know, the sites that I search and things. And I, I will often like things, uh like like advertisements on on Instagram just because I know that it's gonna make the algorithm better. Um, I do the exact opposite. And, oh I don't yeah, I, I don't I, go that far. I, I I do because I know that they they will you know, recommend uh, better things. But at the same time, I was very um, 
I was alarmed when I when I found out that that Android users um, who had Facebook Messenger, all of their their phone calls had been uh, the the timestamps on and dates on their their phone card um, phone calls had been recorded like since they downloaded the app. And I I have an Android, and so so I think as I want to say as a millennial, but I think that this kind of applies to everyone where you there are some things that you're accepting of and some things that you're like, that's that's too far. And uh, maybe it does like depend on the the commercial benefit. Maybe it does just ultimately come down to like capitalism. And if if I can buy a product that is like specifically tailored to me based on the data you have on me like sure that's helpful but like can you turn around and use this this data to to you know criminalize my behavior in some way i i don't know and that, and that's what that's what scares me is not necessarily what you have but how it might be used later and i don't think we can when we think about how data could be used for good i think i don't think we can you know, divorce that from from human intervention. There's so many different layers to it that really, as you're saying, it's hard to even know what is good or bad in some in some instances because there's, just, there's the scope is so large, and so it it becomes a question of if we don't know, then what should we be operating on? What what should be the assumptions that we operate under? And to your point, I think that it is the the operating assumption is different for people in different age groups, different races. And so this kind of equity question becomes really important because if you are in a community that has had a history of state-sponsored surveillance, does that necessarily make you more or less likely to be okay with corporate surveillance, right? And so that's a, that's a harder question that we I don't know if we have good answers to, but there are so many multi-layered kind of like a constraints here to even to even get at it. So, and so to me, I, I guess the next question for you is, you know, as a policy analyst, like what do you, how do we even begin to kind of construct what what something like might look like that might give us a framework for how we might even get at those those answers those questions? So I think that you have to compartmentalize the two if we're if we're talking about policy, and we have to think about data collection, you know, by the FBI by the NSA as something different than than data collection by Facebook because. When you're talking about national security policy, you want to you want to account for the fact that, you know, terrorism is a problem. Malicious hacking is a problem. You know, there are people who are going to be committing committing crimes and you want you want to you want to be able to protect the the American public in in some way and and some level of data collection has to exist for for that for that to happen and you want to um, construct policy that accounts for you know human error and you want to enact um, legislation keeping in mind how it might be abused. And that's a separate question for me than than what you do with with the, the Facebook problem, which is for me, I think that kind of data collection people should be able to opt into or opt out of. And you might say, well, you can, you can just not have a, a Facebook. But that's that's not that's not reasonable for that would that would be inequitable, you know, to to say that because then you're 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 limiting a lot of people's access to to um 
to the internet for one. Facebook is doing a lot overseas in terms of um, providing different different internet services to to people and um, countries with limited access. I guess there are two parts to this, and what I haven't said yet, but what I'm like ultimately trying to to build up to is that 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 Facebook is is a monopoly that that needs to be broken up in some sense, and I I don't know how how it would be broken up, but one of the senators asked a really great question in the hearing, and what he was what he was asking was. Um, you know, he first said, you know, who are Facebook's major competitors? And after some back and forth, um, Zuckerberg finally said, you know, Apple, Google, Twitter, uh, and maybe he named something else. But, you know, the senator asked him, well, do either of them kind of offer what you what you offer as a whole? And he's like, well, no, like, like Google's a competitor with us in this area and Twitter is a competitor with us in this area. What I believe the senator was trying to get at is that you can't, there is nowhere else that you can get Facebook services from. It, it provides a whole of something that, that there is no, there's no direct analog. And I, and I think that that's how you describe a monopoly because we don't, when, when a company becomes that big um, and they don't have any direct competitors, then we don't really have a choice, right? Then we, we don't really, we don't have another option. We can't say, I don't like the way Facebook is, is doing this or that. So I'm going to use this instead. You know, I don't like Google, so I'm going to use Bing. Like we don't, we don't have that. Um, we don't have another Facebook yet. And that means that, that they can basically do whatever they want if they, if there's, you know, a hiccup in their, their data collection and someone abuses this, um, if there's a, you know, another like Cambridge Analytica scandal, we just say <laughs> Facebook, you know, goes before Congress and they can say, well, you know, I'm really sorry about this. And, and then that's it. That nothing, we don't, we don't have a, 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 a ton of leeway here to, to kind of opt in or, or out of this service when, when it's the only one that provides this amount of services. The next part of this is that, you know, I read somewhere that that they were considering making sort of you could pay your way out of some kind of of some level levels of of collection and you don't what you don't want to do is make privacy a commodity because that's how you double down on the inequity if only if only rich people can have privacy and poor people can be can be surveilled so so i guess to to answer your question the in terms of, of policy, there this one has to do more with how we think of of, of companies um, and how we'd like them to um, and how we we want to encourage you know competition in the market just so that people have you know fair amount of choices. So I would think that the answer would be to find a way to to break up Facebook. And for the the national security question, that's something you know and entirely different and and how how we think of of data collection and we just want to I think I think in both while you have to think of policy differently I think the goal would be the the same which is to encourage as little data collection as possible cuz we'll we'll never get the amount that that we want so like just keep pushing for the least amount of information to be collected it's just like a funny aside I think that it's definitely changed the way the way we we talk about this stuff and joke about this stuff with our friends. I know I said something. I was just kind of razzing one of my friends the other day, and she said, "I hope you get doxxed." And I was like, "Oh, oh my god!" Wow, <laughs> you know that. Got to re- 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 reconsider that but, friendship. <laughs> but, 
But I mean, even like you guys' reactions to it, just, you know, that that would not have been a diss or, or a retort, you know, like five or 10 years ago. But it, but we we know what that means. And we know uh, that's literally weaponizing the fear of 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 big data, <laughs> so, you know, telling someone, you know, I hope that someone puts all of your information <laughs> online and, and and the Internet uses it as, as it will is like. Probably the, the cruelest thing that you could could say to someone in in a 2018 environment, with which I think kind of you know reveals through humor our our our, our fears in in this environment. A big reason that we asked you to be here was on something that you wrote for the New America Weekly, and you know, and and the the kind of the genesis of the podcast is about 9/11 and thinking about like that moment and and going through. So we talked a lot about data, but a, an important thing about this and a corollary to this is memory. How we think about these things, how we think about like the moments that kind of um, impacted and developed these moments. So, I guess as a final question, talk to me about what you think the importance of not to be too romantic about it, but you know how we remember like the, these kinds of fears, these kinds of, and even how we how our understanding of these concepts like security and privacy change over time. Like maybe maybe just end with that. So the piece that I wrote was a 9/11 anniversary piece back in 2016. It was just something that I was asked to write, and I think that there's the underlying assumption that that everyone remembers um, everything about that day, and I couldn't write it from that perspective because I don't. You know, I um, I grew up as a military kid. I was in a lot of places, and when I kind of think back on on my childhood, a lot of these events kind of blurred together. So when I start to think about 9/11, I'm like, was I in Mississippi or was I in North Carolina? Was I in first grade or was I in second grade? But what, as someone who did grow up in in a military family and and went into a career in national security, I do know a lot about you know what came after, in terms of um, you know the Intelligence Reform Act in two thousand four, in terms of the you know the nine eleven commission, the TSA, um, all of these different things that are a product of nine eleven, but that. A, a lot of people, I think, won't remember as such. And I think that if we if we want to leave open the possibility of um, creating policies that encourage less data collection, it's going to be in important that we we don't I mean, there will always be a historical record of these events, but that we don't, you know, forget in our collective memory where where this stuff comes from, whether or not it was effective, move forward with that in mind so that we remember that it wasn't always this way. Because that's the that's the that's the the most, I think, insidious thing about, you know, big data is that it it, it kind of it's like a like a program running in the back of your computer. It's something that you don't something that you don't think about ever which which makes it easier to accept because it's not it's not you know a huge interference in in how you are able to conduct yourself online and because it's so easy to do and so little public record of it if if there's you know not you know transparency about it if it doesn't stay in the public conversation in the same way i think that what will kind of do what we tend to do with with these these major events is, you know, we'll just forget them and we'll forget why they're they're important and why this started in the first place. 
when I was writing the piece, I I was saying, you know, I don't really remember this. And, um, you know, I was alive when it happened. And at the time that I was writing it, the incoming uh, freshman in in uh, high school at that time wouldn't have even been alive for it. So how do we think they're going to remember this? So it's more in, when I think of like reminding people why this happened, the people that are talking about it right now can associate these things. But eventually, and it may not even be, you know, this next generation, but the one after the one after this will become so normalized that it may not, you know, raise the same questions that it's raising now. And this will just be, you know, a part of the historical record. You know, remember when we were having those those conversations about big data and what it might portend for the future, you know, it, now now is the time when we're going to going to make those decisions um, about how how data works in the future, how data collection works in the future. And we just want to always keep in mind, um, you know, where we started and and why this is happening in this way if if we if we ever want to change it. Hey, 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 can I ask you guys another question that has nothing to do with? This this particular episode of the yeah. podcast, maybe. So <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. Your social security number. It's a it's a it's a way to to end on a lighter note. So one of my my favorite podcasts that I listen to that I'm going to endorse right now is the uh, Slate's Political Gap Fest mm-hmm. and Slate's Culture Gap Fest. And they always, at the end, they they in, endorse something, something that they're reading, something that they're watching, something that came into their lives in some, you know, serendipitous way, and they want other people to see it and engage with it. So, like, what are your endorsements? I have one, actually. There is a brand new book that just came out by a professor at Cornell University, um, Jamila Michener, called Fragmented Democracy, all about how people experience Medicaid in different ways and how it affects the relationship to citizenship. Um, so, basically, like, how... Being a Medicaid recipient in Georgia is different from being a Medicaid recipient in Ohio. Really great book. Tells you a lot about like just living in different parts of the country in some in a really unexpected, interesting way. So I endorse that. Uh, not a high note, <laughs> but a really important book uh, called The Gravest Show on Earth. Uh, it's a book about the, the AIDS crisis in the United States and all the different public health officials and activist groups who work together, struggled against one another um, and responding to it. I think it's really important literature yeah and and you i was gonna endorse a book but you guys both did books so instead i'm gonna go i was gonna say the tv route but maybe i'll go the film route i'm gonna do two endorsements actually so one i'm gonna endorse um alexander payne's election it's a film that came out in the late 90s it's starring matthew broderick and reese witherspoon and um the other rom-com <laughs> and the other endorsement is um, Wild Wild Country, by <gasps> which was done by the Ray Brothers. Um, oh, so much! I know. So, but the reason I I am endorsing elections is because I just saw it, and it's been on my list to watch since you know the 2016 election. And a lot of people in the policy world were com- comparing Hillary Clinton to Tracy Flick, the Reese Witherspoon's character in the movie. And I was like, why? Like, what is this? You know, what is this connection? And I saw the movie and it's so it centers around this this high school election. But there is 
you know, a lot more going on. And it's definitely like a political film that's masquerading as like a like a teen movie. So definitely watch that. And the reason that I'm recommending Wild Wild Country, which I take it that you've seen. It's so it's so interesting um, because I think that they could have it's about it's it's in his round. a cult uh, that started um, in in India around this. Uh, oh, this is the one this... with the, the Indi- like the the, the, the parody of Saturday Night Live. Right, right, right. He he's a, the 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 spiritual leader Bhagwan Rajneesh and a bunch of semi wealthy white people just kind of threw their money at this and really leaned into this. Uh, out of this was happening in the eighties, so maybe it was just like you know getting towards Burning Man, but post like the sixties like liberation. And maybe they they just needed something else. But anyways, they land they land in Oregon next to this town called Antelope, which is like population forty. And some of these some of these what's really interesting about about this this film is that it kind of pits like the the weird like you know educated liberals against like the you know the the conservative like working class but the people in this town were like not working class like one of them was like the the son of like one of the founders of Nike so so they they both sides have a lot of money and the way they use that to to gain and then wield like political power is so interesting and and I think with this 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 documentary they definitely could have gone the route of like the Jonestown stuff and just like you know, really leaned into the creepy things about the cult. But instead, they, they kind of tell this interesting story about how um, a group can can move and through money gain power and eventually um, take over an entire town um, politically. So I think that there are a lot of like analogs to this particular political moment. And both of those things are super interesting and you should watch them. And with that, thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. Great conversation. I hope, I hope everyone likes it. This has been the direct message. The quote at the beginning of the episode was it should be credited to Stephen Brill, who is the author of After, the book of the title that I that I uh, mentioned. Thanks go out to production here at New America, New America as a whole, um, the Millennial Public Policy Fellowship, and our programs, political reform, and family-centered social policy, and the City Foundation for giving us money. My name is Micah Sampson. I'm Christian Hosam. And thank you for letting us slide into your DMs. You can find the Direct Message podcast at newamerica.org slash millennials slash DM. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play.